0: Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're continuing the series that we've begun in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law! And today, we're going to look specifically at verses 13 through 16. As we go through the series, each week we're doing an exposition of the verses, and then we're looking at one principle about God's law, and then looking at a specific law in the Bible to learn how to apply it today. So those are kind of the three big parts this morning to the message. The first, we'll look at the verses themselves. The second, we'll look at the principle for the day. And... I'm going to take a little bit of time there because I want to spend some time talking about law and gospel, justification and sanctification, some really important distinctions we need to make. And then we're going to look at a particular law that the Bible gives us, talk about understanding it in its day, and then also what implications it might have for us today as well. One thing that means, too, then... Since we're doing this kind of a little bit different, is that the application part of the message? You might be used to that kind of finding that at the end of the message. It's going to be spread throughout the message as we go through this series. Because as we talk about each individual verse, you'll see ways to apply this to your life. The applications that are at the end of the message will tend to be more big picture. Kind of as a group or as a society or as a church type applications. While the first part of the message focused on the verses of Psalm 119, that'll have more personal applications, even though it comes kind of towards the beginning of the message. All right, Psalm 119, 13 to 16, follow along as I read. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. All right, let's jump in with verse 13. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And I'll just make five kind of brief observations here to help us see what the psalmist is saying in this particular verse. First, the psalmist is now speaking. He's declaring In the last verse, where we left off, verse 12, he was asking God to teach him. And once God has taught him, he now turns around and speaks. So he's gonna teach others. The rules have come from God's mouth to his ears, to his heart, and now they are coming out his lips as he begins to speak them in response. The second thing is he mentions specifically his lips. Well, his lips, his mouth, his tongue, are created by God. And as creator, God has claim to them. It's appropriate that they would be used to bring God glory. The third thing in this verse is that what comes out of the psalmist is what's inside him. If you've been following along with the news, you've seen all about the train derailment in East Palestine here recently. And the residents of the town challenged the railroad officials and the EPA officials to drink the water. Some of them bottled some of it and brought it to the meeting and said, I want to see you drink this. Well, of course, they wouldn't do it because it's contaminated. So they're drinking bottled water instead because that's good water. What comes out of the bottle is what's inside it. Well, the same is true with the psalmist. His lips are declaring God's rules because that's what's in his heart. The fourth thing about this verse is something that John Calvin points out. The law of God was not only deeply engraven on his heart, but it was his earnest and strenuous endeavor to gain over many of his fellow disciples into subjection to God. He's telling people about God's law because he wants them to obey it too. The law of God has claim not just on the psalmist, but on Every person. God's claim to our obedience is universal. So it's appropriate that the psalmist would declare God's rules to others, to call them to obedience. That's not judging. That's not forcing his opinions on someone. It's simply proclaiming the universal claim and right that God has over his creatures. And the fifth thing that I want you to see in this verse is that the psalmist declares all God's rules. No part is left out. We're not supposed to pick and choose which rules we like. We don't only declare the rules that we think our culture will find acceptable. We don't cut out the rules that we think people might mock us for. No, we declare all of God's rules. Verse 14 then says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. So here we have another reason that the psalmist is declaring God's rules. He speaks of them because he delights in them more than even in all riches. Now, we tend to talk about the things that we like, the things we enjoy. And often that's very temporary passing things, right? The game that just happened or a headline that we saw or a deal that we found at a store. And that's okay. But there is this settled and deep joy to be found in the way of God's testimony. Then notice that it's the way of God's testimonies that he speaks of here, not just the laws themselves. He finds delight in walking in this way. It's obedience that's in view not just head knowledge listen to how proverbs speaks of this kind of delight the ways of wisdom are ways of pleasantness all her paths are peace or proverbs 24 my son eat honey for it is good and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste know that wisdom is such to your soul I find the words of Thomas Manton on this verse challenging. He says, It is a sign you are acquainted with God's word when the obedience which it requires is not a burden but a delight to you. Alas, with many it is otherwise. How tedious do their hours run in God's service. No time seems long but that which is spent in divine worship. Do you count the clock at a feast? Are you so provident of time when about your sports? What causes your rejoicing? The increase of wealth or grace? In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 15 then says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. As you examine your own life, Would you say that your eyes are fixed on God's ways? When our eyes wander, our body follows. I'm sure you've been driving and gotten distracted, right? Maybe you're distracted by your phone or by the buttons on the dash that you're putting, or maybe you see something out the window that catches your attention. Your eyes wander, and what happens? the vehicle starts to wander too. You start to cross into the other lane or you start to go over on the shoulder. That's why they've got those rumble strips there because it happens. Christian in Pilgrim's Progress several times chooses to leave the path that he's supposed to stay on. He's enticed by Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He finds himself in fear for his life while he's seeking deliverance from Mr. Legality. Uh, At another point, he jumps the fence into Bypath Meadow because it looks a little more pleasant, but he ends up a prisoner in Doubting Castle. He gets sidetracked by the appeal of Vanity Fair and he finds himself imprisoned there. At every turn, when he takes his eyes off the way he's supposed to follow, he finds difficulty and distress. The psalmist here is determined to have his eyes fixed on God's ways. He'll stay on the path laid out by God's law. Now, how will he do that? By meditating on God's precepts. That's what the psalmist says also in Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Calvin explains that our proficiency in the law of God will be small until we cheerfully and heartily set our minds upon it. The more we meditate on it, the better we will be at following God's ways. It's cause and effect that we see there in that first verse. I will meditate, then I will fix my eyes on your ways. It's the same thing that God says to Joshua in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So as we read God's word, we should think about it. Prayerfully consider what God is saying. Thomas Manton explains, we meditate of God that we may love him and fear him. Of sin that we may abhor it, of hell, that we may avoid it, and of heaven, that we may pursue it. Do you want to walk in God's ways? I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. And then verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. If we enjoy something, we want to remember it. The psalmist delights in God's word. He determines then that he will not forget it. We make picture albums and photo books so that we can remember things that we take delight in. We tell stories about events that made us laugh or special days because taking the time to remember actually adds to the delight of the thing. But things that are painful, we wish we could forget. In the Bible... Remembering has to do with more than just memory. It also has the idea of acting on that remembering. Remembering someone means acting favorably toward them. You consider who they are or your commitment to them and you act in a way that is for them. So when the butler got out of prison in Egypt, the Bible says that he did not remember Joseph. In other words, he didn't tell Pharaoh about him until Pharaoh needed a dream interpreted and then the butler remembered Joseph and suggested that Pharaoh bring him out of prison. God is said to not remember our sins when for Christ's sake he treats us as righteous. We just sang that a few minutes ago. When Israel made the golden calf, we are told that they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So to not forget God's word means to obey it, to remember what it says and act on it. And for those of us who have a bad memory, as I do, I find the words of Thomas Boston encouraging. He says, grace makes a good heart memory, even where there is no good head memory. What's he saying? Well, gratitude to God for saving us will develop in us the habit of following God's law, even when we struggle to actually remember with our head all of the details of what God has said. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Well, that's our text for this morning. And now I want to identify one principle about God's law and then look at how that applies to a specific law in the Bible and then to our lives today. And the principle about God's law that I want us to see this morning is this Sanctification was and is one of the purposes of the law. Sanctification, the idea of God making us progressively more holy, more like Him, was and is one of the purposes of the law. And I'm going to spend a little time on this this morning. To start with, ask yourself the question, how am I supposed to know what pleasing God looks like? How do I know in any given situation what is the right thing to do in God's eyes? Is the answer follow your heart, take a vote? The short answer is, biblically, God tells us in his law. So when Peter writes to the Christians living in Asia Minor, he says this, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter says they used to be ignorant of God's standard. And so they were disobedient. But now they are to be holy in their conduct. And he quotes Leviticus to explain what that looks like. Be holy, for I am holy. That's in Leviticus 11. It's in Leviticus 19. I want to show you what Leviticus 20 says, commenting on that. This is verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes... And do them, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So God very clearly says if you want to be holy as I am holy, the way to do it is to understand and obey my statutes. That's how I'm going to sanctify you, that's how I'm going to make you holy. So God's law was intended to reveal who God is and what God's standard is so that God could make his people holy holy. And Jesus echoed this in his Sermon on the Mount. He explains the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't, say, doesn't talk about all ten, but he, the commandments like uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, love your neighbor. He, he talks about these commandments and he gives explanations of them. And then that whole section, that's Matthew 5, 21, down to verse 48. When you get down to verse 48, he finishes that section talking about the commandments this way. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the same thing that Peter said. It's the same thing that was said in Leviticus. Jesus is repeating and reinforcing it. So according to Jesus, how do you know? How to be perfect or holy like God? By obeying the commandments, like he just finished explaining throughout that passage. God's law is eternal and unchanging. When Jesus came, he didn't abolish God's law, he fulfilled it. He filled it up to its full measure. And we're still called to be holy, to obey God's law today. Do a thought experiment with me for just a minute. We often say that in the Garden of Eden, God only gave Adam and Eve one rule, one law, and that's true. As you read that story, you see, not eating from the tree that God told them not to eat from was the evidence of their submission to him, their obedience to him. But think about this. If Adam had murdered Eve, would that have been a sin? even though God hadn't said that murder was against his law at that point? Well, of course it would. If Eve had made an idol out of rocks, would that have been a sin? Of course it would, even though God hadn't yet specifically given that as a law, as a statute. When Cain killed Abel, it was a sin, and Cain knew it. And God held him accountable for it because God's law is eternal. It was already a law, don't murder, long before it ever got written down in the Ten Commandments. Tom Nettles explains, he says, in the unfallen state of man, obedience to the law written on the heart was the supreme delight of Adam and Eve. It's the same delight that our psalmist is speaking of when he says that he has delight in God's law. Now, when Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, he then says that all the other commandments hang on those two, because those two represent the eternal law that was there in the Garden of Eden, that was there in Egypt, that was there at Mount Sinai, and that is still here today. It binds us today. All the other laws hang on those two. And that includes the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are an outworking of those two commands, love God and love others. The 17th century Baptist theologian John Dagg said this. He said, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is this law expanded and adapted to the condition and relations of mankind. This eternal law, love God and love others, is explained further with the Ten Commandments. It's based on the nature and character of God, which does not change. We are to love God and love others. And the Ten Commandments spell that out further for us. So, just like we are still to obey the greatest commandments, love God, love others, we're also still to obey the laws that spell that out and tell us what it looks like. That's how God makes us holy. How he sanctifies us, teaches us how we should live. Joel Beakey writes, he says, if sanctification is a work of demolition and construction. In other words, you're tearing down the sinful aspects of your life and you're building up holiness. Then the word of God is the rule and square of this work. Indeed, it is the line, the measure, the balance by which all things must be framed, ordered, measured, and pondered, as James Usher said. And this is because as the law requires obedience, so the gospel directs the faithful how to perform it. The law is the standard of holiness for the Christian. Let me rely on some of those who've gone before us to explain this to us this morning. Listen to how these Christian men of the past have explained this point. George Downham, the righteousness by which we are sanctified is prescribed in the law. Edward Reynolds, his work called The Sinfulness of Sin, he says, evangelical or gospel grace directs a man to no other obedience than that of which the law is the rule. See, the law and the gospel are not at odds. Rather, the gospel points us to the law as the rule by which we respond to the grace of the gospel. Vavazor Powell, in his book, Christ and Moses, explained, the outward letter of the law is a good book in the hand of the Spirit, To teach and guide believers what to do and how to do. So God has sent his spirit into our hearts and now we walk by the spirit. Well, how does the spirit teach us? What is the curriculum that the Holy Spirit uses to teach us how to live a holy life? The spirit's curriculum to teach us is God's law. And Calvin again the third and principal use of the law, which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law, finds its place among believers in whose heart the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. Here is the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. Again, because we need not only teaching, but also exhortation, The servant of God will also avail himself of this benefit of the law by frequent meditation upon it, to be aroused to obedience, to be strengthened in it, and to be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. Sanctification is one of God's intended purposes for the law. It shows us how to rightly live before him. Now, here's the distinction that I want to make, and this is extremely important. I want to make a distinction between justification and sanctification. And this is where a lot of the confusion about the law happens. So let's clarify it. You cannot be justified by doing the works of the law. Every one of us is a sinner. We all fall short of God's standard. So when God the judge passes sentence on us, we're doomed. But what God has done for us in Christ is to clothe us in his righteousness, to forgive our sins. Jesus was the only perfect law keeper, the only righteous man. And then as our representative, as our king, he stands in our place on the cross. He takes the penalty of our law breaking, death, the curse of the law. And he gives us his righteousness as a gracious gift to be received by faith. Here's how scripture speaks of this. This is Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live If you're relying on the works of the law in order to satisfy God, it won't work. No one is justified before God by the law. Instead, those who are righteous in God's sight are those who live by faith. In other words, they trust Jesus. They, They trust in what Jesus has done on their behalf. So what makes you a Christian is faith in Christ. Thomas Bedford writes, to walk by love is the duty of a Christian, not the definition. Okay, walking by love, remember love God and love others. So walking by love is what the law demonstrates to us. It describes it. That's not how you become a Christian. But once you have become a Christian, By grace, through faith in Christ, now it's your duty to walk according to love, to walk according to the law. And we need the law to help us understand what it looks like to love God and love others. Ernest Kevin explains, law in the heart does not render written law needless. Because you have the spirit of God in you, helping you to obey God's law, helping you to understand it, doesn't mean you don't need the written law. The written law is what the spirit is helping you to obey. It shows us what love looks like in action. So even though our obedience to God's law plays no role whatsoever in our justification, it is still important for sanctification, becoming holy, becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus. Robert Trail says, let the law of Moses keep its own place and be the rule of our sanctification, but in our justification, it has no room at all. So if the law is the rule of obedience for us as believers today, then what's different for us in regard to the law compared to the unbeliever. In other words, if we're both supposed to obey God's law, what's the difference between us in how or why we obey the law? Well, for the unbeliever, the law does reveal God's standard, but it's a standard they cannot meet and it brings a curse that they cannot survive. The law as God's standard beckons them to obey it in order to have life, but this is impossible for the sinner. In other words, the believer is someone whose relationship to the law has changed. No longer are we under the curse of the law. We are free from the curse of death. We are those who have eternal life because it has been given to us by God. By grace, through faith. In the early 1800s, the Scottish preacher John Colhoun wrote a treatise on the law and the gospel. And I have found it extremely helpful in this issue. And so I'm going to quote extensively from him to help us understand this this morning. Here's what he writes. He says, The promise of eternal life to the saints is the promise of the covenant of grace or the gospel and not of the law as a rule of duty. Eternal life is promised to them not in consideration of their sincere obedience to the law as a rule of life, but on account of Christ's perfect obedience to it as a covenant of works, received by faith and imputed by God. It is promised to them not as a reward of debt for their sincere obedience, but as the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, We still obey the law as a joyful duty, but that's not what brings us eternal life. Eternal life is given to us as a gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just share with you how he contrasts the relationship of law for the believer and for the unbeliever, okay? The law as a rule of life to believers, especially in this view of it, is very different from the law as a covenant of works. So the precept of the law as a covenant is do and live. But the command of the law as a rule is live and do. The law of works says do or you will be condemned to die. But the law in the hand of Christ says you're delivered from condemnation, therefore do. The command of the former is do perfectly that you may have a right to eternal life. But that of the latter is you already have begun possession of eternal life. As well as the promise of the complete possession of it, therefore do in such a manner as to advance daily toward perfection. By the former, a man is commanded to do in his own strength. But by the latter, he's required to do in the strength that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Calhoun goes on to clarify why this must be the case. And this is so important. The law, he points out, cannot condemn the believer. Why? Because Jesus has already satisfied the demands of the law for believers. They've already been delivered from the curse of the law. And our obedience to the law or our failure to the law can't change that. God, being perfectly just, would never demand a double payment for sin. If Jesus has already paid the penalty, we can never be liable for it. So the law cannot condemn the believer. The law also cannot have a promise of eternal life for the believer. Why? Because we already have the promise of eternal life on the basis of grace through faith. Apart from the law, we already have what Calhoun calls a complete security against eternal death and a full title to eternal life. We already have possession of our inheritance of eternal life. So for the believer... The law holds no eternal sanction or curse when we fail and no reward of eternal life when we succeed. Instead, we are free in relation to the law. Free to obey the law as the revelation of God's holiness and the model of our sanctification. As believers, we are obligated to keep God's law as a rule of life just like Adam and Eve were obligated to keep God's law, if they murdered, it would have been sin. So we are obligated to the same law today. It's God's eternal, unchanging law, love God and love others. It's the same law that's explained further in the 10 commandments given to Israel. Calhoun explains it this way. He says God's nature is infinitely eternally and unchangeably holy. And therefore, his law, which is a transcript of his holiness, must retain invariably and eternally all its original authority. The law as a rule, then, is not a new preceptive law, but the old law, which was from the beginning, issued to believers under a new form. In other words, this is the same law that all men are obligated to obey. For unbelievers, it's a law which results in the curse of death because they don't meet its standard. But for believers, it's a rule of life in which we have freedom because Christ has already met the demands of the law on our behalf. In fact, if anyone has a greater obligation to obey God's law, it's believers Not only do we share the same responsibility to our creator that unbelievers do simply because God created us, but we also have the added motive of gratitude for the grace that God has shown us in Christ. This is the last thing I'll share from Calhoun. He says, the great design of God in giving this law in the hand of Christ to his people is not that by their obedience to it, they may procure for themselves a right to eternal life, but that it may direct and oblige them to walk worthy of their union with Christ, of their justification in him, of their legal title to and begun possession of life eternal and of God himself as their God in him. If all of that is weighty and complicated, let me boil it down this way. And this is a distinction that Edward Fisher makes in The Marrow of Modern Divinity. He says it's the distinction between do this and live or live and do this. By means of the first, we would have no hope. We could never keep God's law perfectly and so merit eternal life. But the second is all grace. God grants us new life. The spirit regenerates us. The son gives us his righteousness and now we obey his law out of gratitude. Let's look at one biblical example of a particular law this morning. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. We're going to look at the first four verses. Exodus is the second book of the Bible right after Genesis, Exodus 22. And at first, this may seem to be unrelated to what we've been talking about, but I offer this this morning simply as an example of how the law teaches us what sanctification looks like. The law shows us how to live in a way that pleases and honors God, and this is one example of that. Okay? We're going to look at the first four verses. We may come back to these verses at some point in the future because we're not going to say everything that can be said about them this morning, but we'll hit the basics. Just to give you the context, in Exodus chapter 20, we have the 10 commandments. And then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, We have case laws that illustrate how to live out the Ten Commandments in everyday life. And that's where we are in Exodus 22. Let's look at the first four verses. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now that may seem very arbitrary, but it's not. We have here the principle of restitution. Specifically, now, This is related to a violation of the eighth commandment you shall not steal. And the case, the example, involves the theft of farm animals. If the thief steals a sheep and kills it or sells it, he has to repay the value of four sheep. Now, he could pay with actual sheep, or he could pay with money that is the value of four sheep. If it was an ox, then he owes the value of five oxen. So what's with these numbers? Why fourfold or fivefold restitution? Rushduni explains this helpfully here. Multiple restitution rests on a principle of justice. Sheep are capable of a high rate of reproduction and have use not only as meat, but also by means of their wool for clothing as well as other uses. To steal a sheep is to steal the present and future value of a man's property. The ox requires a higher rate of restitution, fivefold, because the ox was trained to pull carts and to plow and was used for a variety of farm tasks. The ox, therefore, had not only the value of its meat and its usefulness, but also the value of its training in that training an ox for work was a task requiring time and skill. It thus commanded a higher rate of restitution. So pay careful attention here. When God calculates the value of something, he takes into account not just its present value, but also the future value that it would generate and also the specialized skills and time that would be necessary to fully replace it. The principle of restitution according to the value of something is the principle that we call lex talionis. Now hold that thought, because we'll come back to it in a minute after we finish explaining the text itself. There are three other kind of complicating factors that the text deals with here. First, If the thief has stolen the animal, excuse me, if he has the stolen animal still in his possession, then the restitution is only twofold. Jonathan Burnside points out selling and killing were the normal way of disposing of an animal because in a small agricultural community, a thief would not ordinarily use the stolen beast for drawing a cart or plow, but would try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the evidence of your theft is right there in front of everybody, okay? But in this case, the thief is caught before disposing of the animal. The animal's returned plus the value of another animal. So restitution is greater than simply returning the animal because there's a loss to a victim here. There's an offense against his ownership of property, there's a loss of time and productive energy, plus there's the intent of the thief to profit from the animal, in a sense, This is comparable to our modern idea of compensating a victim for time lost or for pain and suffering. But the difference here is that this is an objective and reasonable amount. It's not based on the emotion of a jury or the whim of the court. So in this case, it's only two animals that get returned. The, The original one that was stolen plus one more. Why is that the case? Well, think about it, for example, for, you know, if, if, you, if you'd already disposed of the animal, you now have that animal to replace, plus its future reproduction, and the second animal that is kind of the pain and suffering, plus what it would reproduce. So that's your four sheep. For the ox, we add a fifth one in because of the training time. Well, the ox... if if the thief is caught before he's disposed of the ox, he still only does the the, the restitution twofold because the actual ox that is getting returned has already been trained. You aren't losing the training and, and the effort that way. So it's a very objective standard that God is using here. The second kind of complicating factor here that the text deals with is, there's a provision in verses two and three that explain what is permitted in terms of self-defense. If the thief breaks in at night, it's fair for the homeowner to assume that there is physical danger to himself and his family. Who's to say that the thief will only violate the sheep pen? What is he doing out there? Maybe that's a means of him coming into the house itself. And at night, Who is there to help the homeowner? The neighbors will all be asleep. Therefore, if he strikes the thief and kills him, the law will not allow him to be convicted of murder or manslaughter, he's done nothing wrong. But verse three adds that if the sun has risen, in other words, if the theft is happening in broad daylight, then the homeowner may not kill the thief. What does, why does the time of day make a difference? Well, take into account all the facts. First of all, the thief is breaking into personal property. And since this is where the animals are kept, this is the sheep fold or the pen. Today's equivalent would be the barn, but it's not the house. And the homeowner in the day can look out and see what the thief is doing. He's taking the animals. He's not about to invade the house. Okay, so the daylight reveals the truth of the situation. Second, in a small agricultural community, the thief is probably going to be recognized. And third, since he's stealing animals, he's got to drive the animals away from the house and that takes time. This is not going to be a high-speed getaway. In other words, the homeowner can, in the day, raise the alarm, get help from friends and apprehend the thief. So in these provisions of the law, this kind of complicating factor here is now incorporating a potential violation of another one of the Ten Commandments. Here we're talking about the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. Even though the text says nothing about the thief actually intending to murder anyone, the law on a human level is victim-centered, not criminal-centered. The law is concerned first with the rights of the homeowner, not primarily the rights of the trespasser. So the provision about daylight does offer reasonable protection to the life of the thief when it doesn't infringe on the rights of the homeowner and create a potential danger for him. So in this scenario where the thief is breaking in at night, the homeowner has a reasonable assumption that his right to life may be threatened. So he's justified in acting to protect himself and his family. And by the way, this is where we get the concept of aggravated robbery in our legal system. So in Ohio, it's aggravated robbery if the offender displays a deadly weapon, brandishes a deadly weapon, indicates that they have a deadly weapon, or uses a deadly weapon, or if they have dangerous ordinance of some kind, or if they, inflict or attempt to inflict serious physical harm. So the threat or possibility of serious harm increases the severity of the crime. And it changes what responses are deemed appropriate by the law. Now, an appropriate application of this too is that if someone you don't recognize breaks into your house even during the day, and you don't have any other way to detain or deal with him, deadly force is allowable. Because it's a direct threat and violation of the Sixth Commandment. This is just taking the case law, the illustration, and working out the implications of it for different scenarios. So James Jordan concludes, he says, I suggest that the meaning of the law is this. If you don't recognize him and cannot deal with him in any other way, you may kill him. But if you know who he is or have the strength to deal with him, you may not kill him. Now, a third complicating factor here in this scenario has to do with the ability of the thief to make restitution. What if the thief can't pay? He doesn't have the money to restore fourfold for the sheep, for example. Well, in this case, he's sold into slavery. Does that sound harsh? It really shouldn't. This is not lifelong slavery. It is simply long enough to make full restitution to the victim. The thief has forfeited his rights to freedom by violating the personal property of the victim. His work as a debt slave will be compensation for the restitution that he owes. So instead of our modern method of putting him in prison and having him work for the state, the court would likely make him work directly for the homeowner so that his labor go to pay off the restitution that he owes. Now, remember, this is a case law. How do the case laws function? Joe Boot explains it this way. He says, the case laws are not intended to refer specifically to every situation that may arise. Rather, they address representative situations Guiding judges in assessing responsibility. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, leaves judges no discretion. They have no authority to make theft legal or to penalize people for worshiping the true God. But the case laws encourage judges to be flexible in considering how the principles of the Decalogue apply to each case. As in modern courts, the judges certainly had the power to determine mitigating and aggravating circumstances to assess motives to determine probabilities in the evidence. Well, this particular case, here in Exodus 22, along with many others, is illustrating for us the principle of lex talionis. Now, the popular phrasing of that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This comes from... The previous chapter in Exodus, Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The basic idea here is the punishment should fit the crime. The restitution should match the severity of the offense. The meaning of eye for an eye is not literal. If someone punched another person and blinded him in one eye, the court would not gouge out the eye of the offender. That's not the point. It's an analogy. It's supposed to help people determine what would be an appropriate penalty based on the actual damage done. So Rush Dooney comments, what this principle demands is not knocking out the tooth of someone who has knocked out the tooth of another, but exact justice and impartiality in human courts. It's also really important that we recognize what this principle is not. It is not an endorsement of personal vengeance. And it's evident if you just consider the words themselves. Okay, the principle is lex talionis. If you look at that second word, you can see the root in here where we get our word retaliation. It comes from the word talio, which means equal punishment. But, what does the word lex mean? It means law. So this is an equal punishment determined and carried out by the law, not through personal vengeance. So Enoch Wine's comments, he says, in our exposition of this law, it's important to observe that it did not authorize the retaliation of injuries by individuals and so make each man a judge and avenger in his own cause. In every instance of the application of the principle of the talionis, it was the duty of the legal tribunal to a judge and of the public executive power to inflict the punishment. And the case law Here in Exodus, gives a punishment or verdict equal to the offense in multiple ways. It's equal in consideration of the animal that's stolen and its present and future worth, and the self defense part is equal too. The potential threat is a threat against a human life, and so the taking of a human life is appropriate in that case. So let's make some observations about this restitution principle. That are really important for us to understand. Remember, this is a case law illustrating the 8th commandment and also the 6th commandment. We learn to walk in God's ways when we understand this case law and we internalize the principle of restitution. That's what God wants us to learn from this. Cuz we should make restitution even in small ways when when we commit an offense in our own just relationships, things that aren't going to court, the principle still applies and it should help us with measuring how to do that. Let me give you one one way in which our legal system falls short of the biblical standard regarding the principle of restitution that we see here in this Lex Talionis. And that is in this area of restitution for theft, specifically. Okay, we saw in the text, if a convicted thief is unable to pay, he's sold into slavery until the debt is paid. Now, this is not race-based chattel slavery like in American history. This is a court-imposed financial arrangement based on the immoral choice of the criminal. So in America today, if you have something stolen from you and it's not recovered you will probably never recoup the value of the stolen item. Our courts have the latitude to impose restitution on the criminal, but that doesn't mean it'll happen. In fact, I found this on the Department of Justice website this week because I was looking at what they say about restitution. So after explaining that the judge may impose restitution, we have this caveat. Oops, I'm sorry. Realistically, however, the chance of full recovery is very low. Many defendants will not have sufficient assets to repay their victims. Many defendants owe very large amounts of restitution to a large number of victims. While defendants may make partial payments toward the full restitution owed, it is rare that defendants are able to fully pay the entire restitution amount owed. Do you see what's going on there? The Department of Justice is telling you our system doesn't work. That's what they're saying. Here it is. Here's what we do. And by the way, it doesn't work. Did the biblical system work? Yeah. You get full restitution plus damages. Well, but what if somebody refused to pay in biblical times? Would they just go to prison instead? No, they would not. For two reasons. First, Deuteronomy 17 explains what is to happen when someone refuses to go along with the verdict. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. That's a pretty good incentive to carry through and make restitution. God takes this very seriously. If the person who is refusing to make restitution is executed here, recognize it's not for the crime of theft. Why are they being executed? They're being executed for treason against God by refusing his minister. That's the evil that must be purged from the land. It's injustice. And then this will act as a deterrent for the rest of the people so they won't disregard the verdict in the future. And prison is not an option either. Do you know why? Think about the prisons that you see in the Bible. When Joseph is thrown in prison, what kind of prison is it? It's an Egyptian prison. When Peter... And Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. What kind of prison is it? It's a Roman prison. There is no provision for prison in God's law. You could detain someone in custody until the court decided what to do with them. But there's no prison. Instead, it's restitution unless it's a death penalty case, which is itself a form of restitution. So in our current system, think about this, a thief goes to a prison and works for the state rather than putting his labors toward restitution for the victim. And to make the injustice even worse, the victim pays taxes to pay for the prison to feed and clothe and house the criminal that violated him in the first place. Is God's design starting to look pretty good? Can you imagine if we got rid of all the prisons in the United States? If criminals were put to work instead? If they were forced to make complete restitution according to biblical standards? And if they refused, they were executed. Would that not be better than our current system? Victims would be compensated appropriately. There'd be incentive to follow the law. Because it would actually become true that crime doesn't pay. Now, I realize there are complications. But the purpose of the biblical case laws is that it gives us the examples we need of how to deal with the various situations that might come up. And it gives the court latitude to consider all the complicating factors and use wisdom to apply justice according to God's standard. We need to draw this to a close, but I hope you're beginning to see why the psalmist has such high regard for God's law. He rejoices in God's law, he delights in it because it gives him the best way to live. It reveals who God is and it teaches him what it looks like to walk in God's ways. Because God's law teaches us how to live a holy life according to his design we saw this principle that sanctification was and is one of the purposes of the law. We also saw morning, though, that we need to be careful to distinguish between justification and sanctification. We can't achieve justification by keeping the law. But once we're justified by grace through faith, God's design is that we are increasingly sanctified as we learn to obey the law. And the case law that we looked at today gives us the principle of restitution. That's an important principle for every area of life. Our kids need to be taught this. We need to follow this in our workplaces and in our relationships. And as we do, God will honor that. Oh, how I love your law. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths that we have seen from your law and that you would imprint them on our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Help us to walk in your ways, and not just to walk in them, but to delight in them. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.